Uh, he says, and that, that brings me to my fifth and final transformation. What happens to societies with imploded structures? The gentle bell curve of, an, of a modern society, a broad middle, is so crucial because it underpins and anchors democracy. Democracy is a luxury. It takes time. It takes money and effort to be a democratic society. A society of servants is rarely a truly democratic one. Think historically for a moment for the simple reason that, well, servants are too busy being exploited around the clock to really engage with the res publica, the body politic. So when a society's structure implodes from a gentle bell curve into a U-shape, it's usually accompanied by political implosion, too, into authoritarianism, theocracy, fascism, or any number of other tyrannies. Wow. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Black Politic. I want to say I'm your host, but I'm the only one here, so <laughs> it's pretty obvious who it is. I want to talk about some of the economic activity we can expect moving forward as we start to exit from this virus, because I think it's quite important that people understand exactly how the cake is baked and how things work and how exactly it somehow comes to be that we have a crisis, but then afterwards, the rich are richer, and the poor are poorer. It makes no sense. I thought we all all losing money, so I think that would be quite informative. So the main kind of crux of this podcast today will be explaining what is meant by the shock doctrine. Some of you that study economics might have heard that before. Some of you that don't might not. But the shock doctrine is very, very important in understanding how our sociopathic leaders think in times of crisis and how they, you know, make decisions based on economy and politics that really are intended to harm the poorest and the poorer in society and have that effect quite brilliantly. I think we've lived through austerity, so I think people might have some idea already, but I think it'd be quite nice to go and look through the layers and see how exactly this is done as well. So the shock doctrine was a term coined by activists slash economists slash climate scientists, Naomi Klein. She wrote a book in 2007 called Shock Therapy, in which she described how essentially governments and corporations and, and the like of them, they use natural tragedies or man-made tragedies sometimes to push through policies that will be very very unsavory in times in in normal times quote-unquote so times when everyone's paying attention so the idea is that because people are so distracted by what's going on with the you know with a crisis like the coronavirus or the pandemic or the financial crisis or war or sanctions in some poorer countries etc etc they use that time as a perfect opportunity to sneak through the most brutal and unequal policies they have and this really has always been done you know in terms of imperialism the US and the UK have done it to many poorer countries that have invaded or occupied or have sanctions on trying to destroy their governments but now we've really seen them bring it back home now you know financial crisis of 2008 we have the current one a lot of bailouts being passed out so 
I think it would be quite informative, like I said, to go through how exactly they do that. So they pass these bailouts, which I put in air quotes because they're not bailouts. They're really profit protection programs. Going into the hundreds of billions, sometimes trillions in the case of the US. I mean, ours might still approach a trillion, but we'll see what happens. And what they do is that money is not used to rescue those poor industries because those industries are not struggling. A bailout is essentially when, if a government says we're going to bail out a company to the tune of £5 billion, what that really means is they're buying the company's stock. So they're going to buy up £5 billion of that company's stock, but they're also going to buy at market price. So whereas how it normally work is that if you know a company is doing really badly, people start selling off the stock, the stock price will start crashing, the government steps in and buys it at a decent market price so the stock doesn't collapse. The government can hold that stock and then when everything clears up again, the company will just buy it back for you know favourable rates. So essentially what the government did was step in as insurance almost. So they claim they love capitalism, they don't want the government to get involved for what you should have normally so that the company will just collapse. But also what this does is that this allows the company to pretend as though, you know, they're actually doing quite well. So they can pay their, you know, their um, their CEOs and their top people, you know, lavish bonuses and all that kind of stuff. Because it's based on stock price. And because the stock price is doing well because the government bought it, then that makes them look good. Whereas a normal person who's making, I don't know, £4,000 a month, that's not a normal person, but as an example... If they lost their job and they couldn't, you know, work for a few months and they went on universal credit, they're not going to be getting £4,000 a month on universal credit. But that's essentially what those companies are getting. They're getting exactly the same value as though nothing's happening. People right now, some people on universal credit getting £400 a month plus rent, which they still have to pay. None of their bills are suspended. So their wealth has gone way down. Whereas these companies, when they get their bailouts, they're getting the money exactly the same price, you know, as though everything is fine. The government doesn't negotiate and say because, you know, everything is doing so bad, we're going to buy at much lower prices. They buy exactly the same price because they want to keep the whole facade going. That's why when you see right now, the stock market is doing, you know, incredibly well, record profits. Everyone's, you know, making money because it's implicitly implied, if I can use those words consecutively, the government will step in and buy anyone's stock who needs who needs to be bought. So really what you have now is the people that have the unlimited amount of money, which is the government, they're the currency issuer, they print the money. They basically told people, we're going to buy your stock. That's good. That's, that's the biggest consumer confidence you can have. Someone with unlimited money willing to just buy up your stock, no questions asked. A lot of these companies have actually been doing poorly before this. But right now they can use this to sneak in and basically offset all the losses they've had before and chalk it up to all oh, the pandemic. So we're going to keep our money. You also have the situation of furlough, which is, it works two ways, really. So I want to explain those two ways. So the first way the furlough works, that's good for the corporations, is that they don't have to pay those employees their wages. So think about it. The government is giving them money. And buying their stock at the normal price as though everything is going on. But those companies are not actually losing any money because they're not paying any staff. The government's also paying those staff 
So now they're really, they're really double dipping because they're getting money from the government on the one hand, but they're not spending their money on the, on the other hand. So that way, whereas people, even though some people, you know, that's a good thing in the sense of people maintain, you know, quite a reasonable level of, of income, up to 80%, the corporations are again making out like gangbusters because they're not spending any money and they're getting their stock bought at, you know, very favourable prices. So this is again how they can afford to pay their, their CEOs and all their top people incredible profits because they're doing really well. So they haven't been bailed out because they didn't they didn't need that. That was really just profit protection. What the government was doing is saying, we don't want you to not make profits this year. So instead of you just having a down year like every other normal small business where you know you have good years, you have bad years, we're in a pandemic year, so you're gonna have a bad year. They're gonna buy up your stock to ensure that you don't even have a bad year. So not only do those companies not like lose money, they're making profits. In a year where theoretically they've done no work, they haven't produced anything, they haven't sold anything, you know, like if you look at like airlines and all these companies, no one's, you know, been traveling, not, none of the sort, but somehow they're actually making profits, profits being return on investment, what investment, the government buying up their stock. So again, they're getting the best of both worlds. And so when you look at a situation like that, that's how the disparity grows because once people step out of this pandemic where you know a lot of people have lost their jobs and you have a lot of small businesses there was a story in the Washington Post that talks about how a hundred thousand small businesses have closed permanently just just think about that a hundred thousand bear in mind the US doesn't even have a furlough system like we do and some of the other European states so those people might some of them might go from making two three thousand pounds a month to get in wherever unemployment is, let's say know, 700 a month or something like that, their wealth has declined by 2,300, almost, you know, close to over 70%. Whereas the people, you know, the bigger corporations that they're going to be working for, some of them might want to get a job in Walmart and these places, McDonald's, that place that pay 7.25 an hour, they've been getting billions. So they didn't even have to spend any money. So think about it, when McDonald's doesn't open, theoretically, they're not really losing money because they're not spending any money on anything. So in fact, in this system, not only are they not losing money, they're making money, which is again why it's a bit strange how they want everything to open so quickly. What they want to do is double dip. That's again what the shock doctrine is about. You're not content with just taking it one way. So instead of McDonald's just to make profits by just opening and selling stuff, they're not making... They're not losing any money because they're not even selling stuff. There was a mortgage holiday, basically. So they don't even have to pay mortgages on, you know, the the buildings they, they rent and things like that. Or they own some of them anyway. They're not paying any... They're, they're not actually spending any money on those, you know, overhead costs like paying employees and paying to buy, you know, you know beef and all the things they sell. But they're also literally getting money. It's almost like they're running their business. Like a, they have a second business almost. The government is buying their shares. When the government buys your shares, that means you can still trade on the stock market. That's why you can see the stock prices going up and up and up when no one's buying anything. Because it's all always been a game. They don't need people to actually do anything. It's a fake economy. It's all made up. So, okay, we have confidence in you. You're making... And also, some of it is actually based on... The speculation of it is based on how they see these bills that are passing. 
Then they see a bill passed and they say, oh, the government is going to bail out the airlines to the tune of 100 billion. That's very good news because you know those people are getting free money, but also when the country opens up again, everyone's going to go on holiday. That's just, you know, inevitable. The government might even incentivize them to reduce the prices and give them extra money for that as well. They will probably won't because, you know, they love to have their cake and eat it. But again, this is exactly how these things work. So when you look at all these, um, for example, I think the UK passed a coronavirus aid package that was 680 billion. Now it said in the Guardian newspaper, I think it was two weeks ago, that we've only spent 8 billion on furlough so we spent 8 billion on furlough where's the rest of the 670 plus billion where's that going that's going to the already richest people so they're going to pretend as though oh because we spent that 8 billion now we have to do austerity for five six years because we need to make that money back whereas what they're not mentioning is that all that money actually went to the richest people in society so not only are they giving people, you know, they're giving people, or some people anyway, they didn't even release the, um, they still haven't released the self-employed people's um, furlough scheme. So they're going to say, oh, we, we spent 8 billion on people. So that's why we have to, you know, do austerity to get that money back. Not mentioning that most of the money, 96, 97% of it went to the richest people in the world anyway. And so when we come out of the crisis, they're going to cut public services, cut, you know, benefits and things of that nature. So the P, the poorest people are going to be worst hit. Whereas the people they gave all the money to during the pandemic, they're going to give them more tax cuts. So again, that's how it works. So not only are those people gained during the pandemic when no one else was making money, they were making money and getting mortgage holidays, but they didn't do rent holidays. So now when the whole thing starts up again, if you have a mortgage, you didn't um, you didn't owe anything. They'll just add those three months or six months or whatever it is to the end of your mortgage. Whereas if you're a renter, then they say you're owing three months back, you know, back back rent. So we're gonna add it to your rent. Then they sneak up the price of the rent. So maybe they'll say, well, we add um seventy five or hundred pounds to your rent every month to make up for it. But then by the time you finish paying it off, they say, oh, that's the new price now. And just like that, they've snuck it up again. Whereas they didn't have to pay any of that. All they do is add three months to the end of their rent at the end of the day anyway. Because they already make a profit on rent. It's just, it's nothing to them. So again, this is how the system gets perpetuated. It's all very cynical and very evil. And it's sad because, you know, when you think about it on that level, and you understand it like that, you realize it's entirely intentional. The government are serving the interest of the people that put them there, which is, you know, rich people and corporations. So people always wonder, you know, as Michael Hudson said. And uh, Klobuchar, uh, Klobuchar, uh keeps <laughs> saying, you know, what you're saying uh, for Medicare for all will be a trillion dollars over 10 years. Well, here the Fed can create one and a half trillion in one week just to buy stocks. Why, why is it okay for the Fed to create one and a half trillion dollars to buy stocks to prevent rich people from losing on their stocks when it's not okay to print only a trillion dollars 
to pay for free Medicare for the entire population. This is this is crazy. Uh, the idea that only the rich should be allowed to print money for themselves, but the government should not be allowed to print money for any public purpose, any social purpose, not for medicine, not for schools, not for personal budgets, not to bail out, uh, not for uh, employment, full employment, but only to give to the 1%. People hesitate to think that. They think it can't possibly be this bad. But uh, those of us who've worked on Wall Street uh, for 50, 60 years, in my case, that's what the numbers show. Uh, and that's why you don't have uh, the media talking about actual numbers. They talk about, uh, you know, just words and uh, they use euphemisms and it's a kind of Orwellian vocabulary uh, uh, describing an inside out world uh, that they're talking about. I'll never apologize for the. And so as you, as you just heard from that, it's especially more pernicious in countries like, you know, the U.S. where, like I said, they don't have a furlough scheme. They don't have universal health care. They don't have a robust social safety net. You know, whereas, luckily, I was able just to go on, you know, gov.uk, apply for universal credit, and it wasn't that complicated, thankfully, for, for me anyway. I'm not saying that as though that's how it is for everyone. But, you know, five weeks you get the payment. They make them line up. In America sometimes Again this is all cynical It's done so It's a pandemic No one wants to get the virus So if you make people line up Then no one's going to show up Or when people show up They're going to wait in line For three, four, five hours Who wants to do that? The humiliation The shame of it And so when you see these protests Where people are you know Saying let's get back to work And protesting You have to understand it In that context Yeah there's some right wing cranks That just believe that you know the government is trying to, you know, become a dictatorship or whatever. But a lot of people are just genuinely hurting. At least that's how I see it anyway. I always try and take the sympathetic view. Because their livelihoods are being decimated. Imagine running a little small business. As, you know, for the past two, three months where the country's been shut down, you've seen 80, 90% loss in your, in your income. You might not even be able to claim unemployment because... They'll argue, oh, well, you're still employed. You can just open up anyway because we never had an official lockdown, etc., etc. But because it's an unofficial lockdown, no one's patronizing your business. No one has any money, so they can't spend on your business. Of course, you want the country to open up as well. Because think of the fear. You know, you have, you have a wife, you have kids, you have a mortgage, you have bills, you have food to pay for. If you see some of the lines on, um, on Twitter, I mean, it's a video of people lining up at food banks they have thousands of cars blocking all the streets people showing up at like 3 a.m thing doesn't open till like 7 8 but they're showing up you know five six hours earlier so they can line up to get food to get water you know this is the society is, is falling apart but somehow the richest in the society again like i said they're making up like gangbusters this is what the shock doctrine is about it's about using the time of a natural disaster or man-made disaster or a pandemic to cynically push the most brutal, far-right capitalist policies. And, you know, it's having its intended effect. When you have a situation in America where 36 million or so are unemployed, because, again, they didn't have a situation like a furlough where they said, you know, instead of giving all the trillions to the corporations, we'll just pay everyone's paychecks. Simple. They didn't do that, so the bottom fell out of the of the of the labor market very quickly. So he says over half, close to half of their workforce is unemployed, 
I remember I told you earlier, 100,000 businesses closed permanently. What does that mean? That means a lot of people, just there's going to be very high unemployment even after this whole blows over. There are no jobs anymore. They're going to have 5,000, 6,000 people applying to, you know, one, one um, store role at Walmart. And because of that, the, the wages are going to stay low. The government's not even going to increase it. They're not going to do any of that. They're not going to spend on a jobs program. So what you're going to have is the entrenchment of inequality. Whereas before they claimed there was... Eight, remember, 80% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Think about that. 80% in the richest country in the history of the world. So if 80% of people are living paycheck to paycheck, how many paychecks do you think they can miss before their whole life just falls apart? So this is how, not only is this terrible economically, because why would you want to live in a country where half of the people are unemployed and there's, you know, people, Jeff Bezos is about to become a trillionaire. It just doesn't make any sense. Even economically, they can grow their GDP, you know, production, output, all of this much faster by just have, having, you know, having more people have that money, being able to, you know, have a business or, you know, live better lives or healthcare, things like that. Even in a pandemic, they won't provide their people with healthcare. And they're spending twice as much as, you know, the next country on healthcare. But somehow they have worse outcomes. Again, this is how this works. They essentially loot in the country. So what you're going to have is the type of Mad Max scenario where there's incredible wealth. Essentially wealth apartheid. I don't know if some of you have seen Mad Max. There's like the city where, even though the city looks very strange in Mad Max... It's like where all the, you know, the, the the leader lives and all those goons and stuff. And then outside of that, you have like an incredible expanse that gets patrolled all the time because that's where like the crazies live. That's what we're going to have. We're going to have, you know, economic apartheid. You have the incredibly wealthy billionaires that are talking about more money than they will ever spend. And then you have the rest of us at the bottom fighting for their scraps. This is what the shock doctrine is about. Another effect that I think is quite important to talk about in relation to the shock doctrine is how it destroys democracy and how the whole life, first of all, we've never had a democracy under capitalism anyway, sorry to tell you. It just does, it never, it's not compatible, that's just a fact. But this is exactly how it gets exacerbated. There was a, um, a, a leaflet that was circulating on Twitter. Joe Biden, is always running for president, was basically the nominee for the Democrats. He was going to do some um, some some appearance with Hillary Clinton on Zoom. And they released the prices for the tickets to be able to join the call. And the lowest one was £2,500. Bear in mind, this wasn't like last year. This was like just less than three weeks ago. So when the pandemic was well and truly underway. And, you know, every week it was like 10 million people losing their jobs. The cheapest ticket was £2,500. Now, who do you think is going to be able to afford £2,500 to speak to Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden to lobby on behalf of poor people and children that are homeless and children that are going hungry? Do you think it's going to be people like us? Or do you think it's going to be people that have all the money in the first place? So when you create a system in which you have an incredibly wealthy upper class and everyone else on the bottom, an oligarchy basically... Even more extreme than if there was a word for, you know, something as extreme as an oligarchy. We don't have a functioning democracy anymore. Because under capitalism, democracy is commoditized. So 
what you can get in the in the political arena is what you can afford to buy. You know, if you can afford to have, you know, a private dinner with Hillary Clinton or to join a Zoom call, I think the highest price on there was about 100,000, which makes you a host. I don't know what that gets you. I'm sure that gets you a very a very listening ear. If you can afford 100,000 pounds to spend on a night with Hillary Clinton, then you get your concerns heard. If you can't afford it, no one cares about you. And that's why there was a study done by Princeton University. Like, he was on the BBC. I'm going to link to it in the show notes. It conclusively, you know, showed that the US is an oligarchy. Because 80% of all the, of all the, the population were in the poorest 80%. Their views don't even get represented in policy. So, for example, if, um, like, you know, right now, eight, I think it was about 70% of the US want a universal healthcare system. That's exactly the opposite that has been done. Because no one gives a shit what they think. They have no money. They're poor. You know, what can they get you? They can't, you can't get votes from them. They only listen to the people that, you know, that have money. And so there's no democracy anymore because you have a system in which, you know, people are getting poorer and poorer with every crisis. And the rich, you know, can buy unlimited political power. So even if, you know, 10 million of us wanted to shut down Westminster tomorrow, or I'm sure we all want higher wages, £15 an hour, £20 an hour, all it takes is, even if we had, you know, a million votes on our side, all it takes is, I don't know, some rich people to have 100000 £200,000 to have a private meeting with Boris Johnson and say, don't do that. And that's it, it's done. That's who they listen to. The people almost don't count anymore. And also you have a social effect on the democracy where if you're extremely poor and you continue to see that these things are affecting you so badly, why would you even want to vote? In our country, the election day is not even a holiday. So why would you leave your business that you're just trying to make you know, enough to survive to see the next day to go and vote in an election? That, would, that makes no sense. Like, you just wouldn't do that because you need money. So if you can afford to, you stand out there and, you know, take a few hours of, you know, early morning of work to vote. When you get your lunch break or, you know, in the evening or whatever it is. But for the majority of the people, it's just like a, it's like a sport they watch. Because they're too poor to even get involved. And that's when you're living so on the margins and everything is, you know, just enough to make it to the next week. And then... A lefty politician comes and says, oh, I'm going to offer you free help, free this, free that. But you have to pay a little more in taxes. You're going to be like, no. Because you cannot afford that little bit more in taxes. You're living exactly on the edge anyway. And that's what happens. So it seems like, why would people not want to vote for Jeremy Corbyn? He makes so much sense. He literally, you know, he wants what we all want, etc., etc., etc. But when they've demonised taxation and saying that, even though I feel like it was a bad strategy by Jeremy Corbyn himself to talk as though, you know, increasing... He didn't even really have to increase taxes. And he wasn't going to increase taxes for anyone making less than £80,000 anyway. So I don't know why he even brought up increasing taxes. But once you say that, all the people making, you know, £15,000, £20,000, they can't afford anything. Rent's going up. You know, the cost of living's going up. If you live in London, the t- transport is ex- incredibly expensive, you know childcare 
So you're living so on the margins that you don't even want to be involved in democracy. It's too expensive for you. You just you, you don't pay attention to it. You're working, you know, two, three jobs or you're working, you know, 50, 60 hours a week. You know, too tired to even read anything. You don't know what's going on. The little news you get is from, you know, BBC when you turn it on. And all they do is lie to you. They lie to you that we can't afford, you know, to, to buy anything. But somehow we can afford war and bailouts and all these things. But you already hear of, of them on the BBC. Andrew Marr said the other day, well, I'm sure this is going to have to be paid for eventually. It's not specifying that it's only 8 billion or 10 billion or so that's went to the poorest people. And the majority of the money have gone to companies just to protect their profits. So they're not even going to have a dip in profits. They're going to be making, you know, trillions. And then they're going to do unnecessary austerity on poor people. And that's going to permanently entrench the divide. I read a very good article about this in um, on Medium. America's already dying middle class and working class will finally crumble and coalesce into one vast permanent underclass. America will have effectively a massive pool of something very much like easily algorithmically exploited techno-feudal neo-serfs. That's quite a phrase. People who've reverted to servitude to make a living. Only their overseers are an app. These low-income service jobs are economist jargon for people becoming servants again. To whom? The cacistocracy. So tell me, talk, talk about... So I think this is very important contextual information when you understand, to try to understand even foreign affairs. When you think about why are they bombing these people? Why are they overthrowing this country? Why are they sanctioning that country? The people that have control in America, the wealthy capitalists and their corporations, they are incredibly violent and brutal. They're sociopathic. They don't understand. They, they've, they've, they've completely lost all perspective when it comes to you know, human life and what's important and what's not. They, they're worshipped in maniacal, obsequious relationships. With capital and wealth has completely just corrupted them, has broken their brains. So that's why the you know the country acts with such belligerence on the world stage. And if they can do this to their population, you know, their native people, their countrymen and countrywomen, what do you think they care about people in Nigeria or Somalia or you know Afghanistan or Iraq? It doesn't it doesn't make any difference. And what they breed is a people where they're incredibly cynical. So they do this so much to them, such that you can't, you can't even imagine a better way. My friend and I were having a conversation last night, yesterday. And I said to him, well, why couldn't the government just, if they want people to social distance, deliver food to everyone's homes? And he was like, yeah, but there must be a reason why they're not doing it. There's just some things we don't know. He couldn't even see something that's not even that complex. Because again, that's what these right-wingers and centrists do. No progress, no vision, no imagination. So people only think the way society is now is the only way it can be. So when someone from the left comes up saying, yeah, we have to have this, we have to have this. They're like, yeah, but if it was that simple, you know, I'm sure we'd have it by now. Because they don't want to believe that the people ruling them are just that cynical and that evil and just that maniacal. But, you know, sadly they are. You have a situation where, you know, 
half the country is unemployed, who can buy politicians? Only the only the rich and wealthy. And so that's why they get, you know, ninety five, ninety six percent of all the of all the coronavirus money. Because they're the ones that own the government and they're just getting you know, simply a return on investment. And they're not even hiding it now. You're seeing even senators selling their shares. They'll come out of meetings where, you know, they'll get briefed that all oh, this virus is a big deal. They'll come out, call their stockbroker, hey, take my shares out of that company, put it into this company. I mean, it's in your face. And I think the silver lining, I'd say, is that it is exposing it, you know. I don't love it because it's it's incredibly painful to watch, but at the same time, there can be almost no dispute now, unless someone's just being stupid, that the government does have the money. I mean, if you had said to someone, a centrist or a right-winger, that why doesn't the government just pay everyone's wages, as an hypothetical in any situation, they would have swore to you that was like, like, couldn't be done and like, you know, communism and, you know, incredible insanity. But somehow when the government does it, it's not insanity anymore. So it shows how it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, you know. Someone's been kidnapped for so long and then someone else new gets kidnapped and they come and say, oh, you only get to eat, you know, twice a day. And they're like, yeah, isn't that so great? You know, at least it's not zero. At least he's not starving us. It could be worse. He could be doing that. Look at those old people. That other person that was here before, he's dead now. He was getting starved and we're getting two meals and, you know, he goes gentle on us or something. Because they've literally, they're holding people hostage and they're holding their minds hostage too. So they can't even, they can't even see it. You know, the person genuinely thinks, you know, the kidnapper's being nice. They're doing the best they can, you hear some people say. You know, they're trying their best. They're not, they're trying their best to fuck us, yeah. And, you know, it's very very depressing, but I think it's eye-opening, which is always good. And I also think this this kind of situation raises an important question about the nature of, you know, cap, you know democracy versus authoritarianism, whatever you want to call it. Because, you know, people always read on China and Cuba and these other, these other countries and say, oh, they're not democratic and they're authoritarian and would you rather live there or here or whatever like that. But what does it say of China that they were able to get a grip of this? Very much. China has 1.5, 1.6 billion people. They have less than 4,000 deaths. Our country has 70 million people. And as I know some people say, oh, the estimates are really high, etc., etc. Right now we're up to 33,000. But let's just even say this, like 25,000. That's, you know, six times the amount of deaths. And we don't even have that many people. You know, it came out the other day that Wuhan had um, a few more cases and they're going to test all 11 million residents. But somehow they're authoritarian and, you know, they don't care about their people, etc., etc. So what does it say that they're able to respond and react in constructive ways to their people more than our so-called democracies. Which country is really more democratic? One that actually cares, you know, does what his people need, or one that doesn't. So in our country, we swear we have a voice, but it's never listened to. Whereas in their country, we swear they don't have a voice, but somehow the government is doing all the things they want anyway. Now, it could be because of the culture of, the, of their country. I don't really know, because I've been watching a lot of documentaries on China, but... Not enough that talk about, you know, why they're so resolute in their communist ideals and things like that. And there's actually a, a report by the World Bank in 2017 that said China has lifted 800 million people out of poverty. 
from 1990. Just think about that. 800 million. In our country, we still have one in five you know, of our population in poverty. We have children going hungry, which is like cartoonishly evil. They've lifted 10 times, close to 11 times our population in the same time period. Out of poverty. It's, that's, that's, that's insane. We don't even have nowhere near that. We only have like 70 million right now. So before it was even lower. But some people will swear to you, oh, you know, that's just how things are. We can't help everyone, even though we did it with education or healthcare. But we can't help everyone when it comes to poverty. It's very, it's a very depressing state of affairs. But I think that did get me thinking about, you know, which countries are democratic and which countries aren't. Cuba, they swear, you know, it's an authoritarian regime and, oh, they abuse their people. But somehow they didn't even have that many coronavirus deaths. Somehow they're sending doctors all over the world to help other countries, our so-called first world countries. The state of Kerala in, in India is a communist-run state. They only have four deaths. I think there's about how many people, you know, tens of million people, tens of millions of people living in the state. So somehow our countries are the best, you know, shiniest democracies and the people are just, you know, thrown out to the wolves. Like in America where they have, you know, going on 90,000 deaths now and they even want to open back up again and stuff whereas China they locked everything down but you know they only had 4,000 deaths and I remember when China was locking down there was articles all every day and night in the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Guardian and the BBC oh China's locking down its own people this raises human rights concerns this raises this concern and that concern but when we do it somehow there's no human rights concerns and then now they'll be they're able to open back up again because, you know, they were able to tackle it more seriously. But somehow we're not. It seems that the, the people of Ch the, the government of China, because of the power concentration being in the Politburo, which is their the party apparatus, they don't really care much about profit. They can easily suspend the making of profit for, you know, however long it needs to be during their lockdown to make sure everything gets done. And then now they can open back up again. Whereas our country, they're so, you know, maniacally devoted to making profit that even in the face of a pandemic, they just can't help themselves. It's, it's a disease. Hence why, you know, we have a pandemic and somehow Jeff Bezos is going to be a trillionaire. And people are thinking, you know, is, should there be an upper limit on his wealth? Because he, he hasn't got an internal upper limit where he's like, I'm going to stop now, I've made enough money. It's a worship for them. They have to keep on going. And so I think, in my opinion, it kind of proved that, you know, our country's being democratic. It's just a big joke. There's no such thing in these countries. It's, there's no such thing. They have a one-party state, China. And within their one-party state, they do have democratic systems. Even the, you know, the different provinces are quite independent. It's not just like, you know, the guy at the top, which is the secretary... Xi Jinping just says, oh, let's do this, and everyone does it. There are many, like, autonomous regions that do different things and try different policies, different, you know, systems and things like that. And they review it, they see if it's successful, they change it. Again, they think ahead, unlike our countries. We always react to anything, but they have foresight. It's a bit like, you know, in this country when, after World War II, they elected a socialist government of Clement Attlee and... They put the NHS in. They talk about care service, universal education, things like that. 
Because that wasn't the time to say, oh, you know, let's just go slow. Let's just... The whole country's poor. The, you know, London's all bombed up. Now is the time for bold action, you know, to be aggressive in helping people. But again, fast forward to 2020, people's brains are broken, sadly, by this system. So we have China having, you know, 25,000, you know, kilometers of bullet trains and, you know, traveling, you know, 1,000 kilometers in like, you know, you know, an hour or something like that. Whereas we want to go to Manchester, which is like, you know, 200 miles or so, and it takes, you know, four hours. Again, no, you know, no creativity, no innovation. And it, this is why I hate the centrists so much as well, because they always hate this. When the left says, let's have this, oh my God, that's so far-fetched, that's like crazy, let's slow down, it's so unrealistic, blah, blah. But then there are other countries that are much poorer than us, China's not much poorer than us, but other countries. I mean, even per GDP, if you compare our GDP to China, given how low our population is, per capita, we probably have a higher you know, GDP per capita. But somehow they're able to do it, and they're able to you know, get much farther ahead. Look at AI, 5G, all these things. But somehow we can't do it. And they swear we can't do it because that's the, all the system is about is extracting all the, sucking out all the good stuff, all the wealth, all the creativity, you know, just sequestering in just a few, in the hands of a few, and everything else is just stagnating. If you say, for example, why can't everyone have a home? When you talk about, you know, people arguing, oh, yeah, you know, those people on benefits, they always get free homes. Why can't everyone get a free home? If we can deem that healthcare and education is just as important, you know, for people to survive. Are you telling me food is not a fundamental human right to survive on? Housing, that's not a fundamental human Where would we be? How can we not live in a house? But again, if someone was to say this on the BBC or anywhere, even sometimes even on Twitter, that's crazy. What are you talking about? Giving a house to everyone? Next thing you know, they'll be posting Denmark. Oh, Denmark guarantees a house to everyone. But they won't, they'll, then they'll say, why can't we be like this? Because every time someone proposes it, they make it seem like, you know, oh, communism. No, the government's going to do this and do that. And oh my God, that's like crazy. We can't have that. No vision, no creativity, nothing. No foresight, just stupid conformity, establishment thinking. Whatever we have now is what we can always have. If it gets worse, then I guess it gets worse. Getting better is out of the question. This is the perfect time in this whole pandemic and crisis to really be aggressive in, in investing in people, make universities tuition free, increase all the degree apprenticeships, start building new homes for people to live in, put the homeless in there, put like you know families in there and give them the homes because that's a way of creating wealth. You know, if you build a home as a government, say, we're going to give you this home for free, just take it. You're just giving that person essentially two, three hundred thousand pounds. They're not going to use it now. They're going to use it later. You know, when they pass on to their kids. And that's how you create wealth in society. But again, I can sit in my room and think of these things in 10 seconds. But the smartest people, they swear they're the smartest in our country. Some of us, some of them will tell us they can't think of these things. Of course they can. They're just incredibly cynical. And I think, you know, it's a sad fact, but that's just how it is. So on that sober note, I'll leave it there, I think. I hope this has been very informative. 
and I think I appreciate people, you know, understanding how these things work, how the cake is baked, because I very much would love to understand as well, which is why I kind of got into this. So hopefully you find this very informative, you can share with your friends and family and so on, and they can understand exactly how it works as well. But I think when we understand exactly what's going on, it's harder for us to be fooled by, you know, cause for austerity and things like that. So I will speak to you guys later. Thanks for listening.